Good morning, my name is Abigail Dietz, and today I'll be reading the scripture. We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 7. For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. How are we doing today? Good. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah? Okay. I'm not so sure you actually did based on that response. <laughs> um, so if you don't know me, my name is Dave Hahn, and uh, I'll be the privileged one to be able to open God's word with you this morning. As Abby read, we will be in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, and it will actually be in Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 7 for the next four or five weeks. And even apart from that, we'll actually be looking at eight words, and this morning we're going to be looking at the first two of those eight words. So I'm not sure if you have noticed or not, but there is this thing that happens around this time of year, and with every passing year, it seems to happen earlier and earlier. This year, I think I started seeing it near the end of September. I first started hearing it early last week. Some of you are in favor of it happening so early. Others, like me, stand directly opposed to such an early arrival, even if it is the most wonderful time of the year. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the sights and the sounds of Christmas. So no doubt winter weather came sooner to our region than it usually does this year. I think it's one of the only times that I can remember having cut my grass and raked leaves after snow had fallen. But along with the early winter weather came what could be seen as a rejection of all things autumn. An attempt to look past this other little national holiday that we try to celebrate, Thanksgiving. And every year it seems that stores and people's homes get filled with the things of Christmas a little bit earlier than the year before. And some of us chomp at the bit wondering when can I actually put up the stuff without anybody scolding me. When will my radio station flip over to its all-Christmas-music-all-the-time format? And then there are others of us that like to take our time to ease into the season and not skip over an entire holiday before the Christmas spirit overtakes us. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I really do love Christmas. Uh, and if you put up your Christmas tree in October, or if you listen to Christmas music year-round, Jesus says, I have to love you, so I will. The rule around our house uh, is no Christmas anything until the day after Thanksgiving. So you can imagine that two days ago, things went crazy. Um, once uh, the, that holiday, our national holiday of Thanksgiving, is pro properly observed, I really am all in. Half of our basement is filled with bins of Christmas decorations. 
One of my duties is to bring said bins upstairs, which I did yesterday. Another one of my duties is to put up the tree and the lights, and I also do the outside decorations. And when we're driving together, I play Christmas music in the car. That's what we did on Friday when we were driving around. The first song that we play every year, if you're curious, is O Tannenbaum off of the Charlie Brown Christmas Vince Guaraldi thing. That's always the thing that kind of kicks off the Christmas season for us. Uh, I like to listen to Christmas music in the car with everybody, even though, if you think about it, it's really the same 20 songs done by a zillion different artists. And as I've thought about it, I think one of the reasons people want and enjoy Christmas to come early, apart from maybe the, the folks that are on the commercial side of things, is that it is filled with so many beautiful and beloved traditions. Traditions that capture our hearts, traditions that really fill our senses, But if you were to do research around some of the most beloved Christmas traditions, you would discover that many of their origins are not as romantic or as inspiring as maybe we would want them to be. Many of our favorite traditions have very simple beginnings. Some of them, honestly, are godless and pagan. And some of them, it's hard to tell how it began or even why it's continued. As a for instance, we do know that both pagans and Christians have used evergreen trees to celebrate this time of year. Pagans first use evergreen branches to decorate their homes during the winter solstice to remind them that spring was coming. Now, conversely, there is a legend which says that the first person to bring a Christmas tree into a person's home, and it was his own home, is Martin Luther. That one night before Christmas, Luther was walking through the forest and he looked up to see the stars shining through the tree branches. It was so beautiful that he went home and he told his children about it, said it reminded him of Jesus who left the stars of heaven and came to earth at Christmas. And so he cut a tree down and he brought it inside. Now maybe that story is true, but maybe it's not. The question is, is why do you and I put up Christmas trees. Christmas lights were invented in the late 1800s. People used to, if you go to um, Old World Wisconsin during this time of year, you will discover that people used to put Christmas trees on tabletops and they would put actual candles in Christmas trees. You want to talk about a fire hazard of fire hazards. You might as well pour gasoline around your house. But in 1871, an inventor named Edward Johnson hired 24-year-old upstart inventor Thomas Edison. And six years later, Edison would invent the phonograph. Nine years later, Edison would invent the light bulb. Inspired by Edison's invention, Johnson strung together 80 red, white, and blue colored light bulbs. And he put them around a tree, and he put it onto like a little spindle in the front window for the passers-by to just marvel at. And today... As you know, an estimated 150 million light sets are sold each year, serving as a reminder to many of us that Jesus, the light of the world, was born to us on Christmas Day. But is that why you and I put up Christmas lights? Candy canes are another Christmas staple, though they were not always associated with Christmas. Historically, actually, candy canes began in 1837 as just a straight white sugar stick, basically sugar and honey. 
And in time, they grew more popular, and some began adding mint flavors to them, and they began to have an association with Christmas because of that. And in 1920, a man in Georgia turned a straight stick into what we know as the cane. That became the shape that we kind of know them as now. Conversely, legend has it that in 1670, a German choir master was worried about children sitting quietly through the Christmas service. Who's heard this story? He wanted to keep the children occupied while also reminding them of Jesus. And so he created the candy cane, right? Candy will keep them occupied. The J for Jesus, if you turn it upside down. But really the legend of the candy cane kind of ends there. And what's happened as the candy cane has gotten more popular is more Christian meaning has been ascribed to it. The white of the candy cane is supposed to represent the purity of Jesus. And the red stripes around the candy cane is supposed to remind us of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Some even say that the peppermint flavor is supposed to remind us of the hyssop plant that's used in the Bible, which is, a, which is something that the Bible associated with purity. But what do candy canes mean to you? What do they mean to me? Now there is one other tradition that I have grown to love and observe in the last two decades of my life. I don't know why or how I missed it before, but I did. And whether you realize it or not, we have already observed it this morning, and it is the observance and celebration of Advent. Advent is part of the traditional liturgical year, like Christmas and Lent and Easter. And it's observed in the last four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming. Jesus Christ's coming. And this time of year is a perfect time to consider and think through why Jesus came. One author talked about Advent this way. The process of Jesus saving us from sin, death, and evil begins with Advent, his coming into the world. That is the great Bethlehem event, not merely the sweet moment of a newborn baby, but God's entering into the world to do battle with everything that tears us down. So in the four Gospels, we hear Jesus himself say that he came to fulfill the scriptures, to preach and proclaim, to lead us out of darkness, to testify to the truth to serve and to sacrifice and to give life to the full. And that is just a few of them. But the anticipation of Christ's birth and his life among us 2,000 years ago is only part of Advent. Advent is also a celebration and anticipation of Christ's coming again in glory. And you and I live in the space between those two events. As Lindsay reminded us, we're in the already and the not yet. And the reading that you heard at the beginning of the service today and those that you will hear in the coming weeks have and will reflect on both of Christ's comings. Now, in addition to our own reflection and readings of Christ's first and second coming, Advent has also historically been observed through the lighting of a series of candles. And like many traditions, there are different ways that this is observed. Here at Disciples Church, you'll see we have five candles, but we are in a building that does not allow open flames, so we had to be creative and really clever. It kind of looks like a real flame though, right? So either way, 
On each of the four Sundays before Christmas, this being the first, one candle will be lit. And the center candle called the Christ candle will be lit on Christmas Eve in celebration of his birth. And so each week as you come and worship with us, let the candles and the songs and the readings serve as a reminder to you that Christ has come. And he will come again. See, we each have traditions, observances, and celebrations that we hold dear and participate in, whether it be a cultural thing or whether it be a personal thing for us. Probably none so more than at Christmas, and I am not trying to steal their meaning or significance from you this morning. So if the candy cane thing was truth to you, I'm sorry. Remember that time that Dave ruined Christmas? (laughs) That's not what I'm trying to do. Rather, my hope is to encourage you And prayerfully reframe the conversation this way. Whatever traditions you observe and celebrate, spend time this year focusing on why you're doing them, regardless of their origins. Traditions can become dead and meaningless unless we understand and consider and remember what or who they point us to. No matter how pure or questionable their origins. Putting an evergreen tree in our living room is a somewhat odd tradition, unless it reminds us of everlasting life with God. Christmas lights are pretty to look at, but they remind, if they remind us of Jesus, the light of the world born on Christmas Day, they become infinitely more beautiful. Candy canes become more than just a sweet minty treat when they remind us of our great sinless shepherd who shed his blood on a cross to take away our sins. And it is the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, and prince of peace that our hearts and minds need to be reminded of because we can so quickly forget See, Jesus is the why and the what of Christmas, and all of its best observances and traditions point to him. So over the next four weeks and on into Christmas, we'll be looking at Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, which is all about Jesus. And in Isaiah 9, we get descriptors of who our Savior, God's Son, would be and what he would do, so that when he appeared, we might recognize, worship, and follow him. Verse 6 of Isaiah 9 reads, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. So what is meant by the word wonderful here in verse 6? Well, like all four of the unique identifiers and attributes in this passage, our modern day understanding of this word might not be helpful in understanding what the original author intended. Because when we say wonderful, we tend to mean really, really good. Man, that was great. Maybe we're talking about a performance or a piece of art or a meal that we have had or the news that we have just heard. That's how we use wonderful. But does that definition do justice to Isaiah's chosen subject? Is that what he was trying to communicate? The word wonderful translated here comes from the Hebrew word pele. Pele is part of a word set that is used 80 times in the Old Testament. It is a word that refers to the Lord himself and his works. Never, ever 
attached to man's accomplishments. And according to one commentator, Pele is the nearest Hebrew word that we have for supernatural. Listen to how David used it in Psalm 139, just to get an idea of its context. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Wonderful is used in Psalm 139, in Isaiah 9, our passage for today, and dozens of other places in the Old Testament refers to works and wisdom that is beyond human explanation. It is high, David says, and we cannot attain it. Wonderful is something out of the ordinary, and it has overtones of deity. This is a God thing. And wonderful is how the Christ child, born in a manger 2,000 years ago, would be defined. And this definition of wonderful carries over into the New Testament, even though the original words are different. Listen to its context in Matthew 21, verses 14 through 15. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Such wonderful things caused indignance in the religious leaders. These were God things. In Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus said, The stone which the builders rejected has been made the cornerstone. This cornerstone came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Wonderful things get our attention. They defy logic and they leave us almost speechless. Wonderful not only expresses what God does, but who he is. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. So what is meant by counselor in this verse? The word counselor translated here comes from the Hebrew word ya'atz. And the Hebrew meaning of ya'atz is very close actually to our definition of counselor. It means to advise or to consult. And in its Hebrew context, the word association is that of a king giving counsel to his people. Listen to Micah 4, verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Here's how David used that word in the Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 7 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Isn't it good to know that God desires and promises to counsel us, to give us wisdom, to advise us? Who could use some wonderful counsel today? What decisions do you need to make today? What wilderness are you in? What fork in the road stands before you? Do you know that God wants to give you wisdom? He wants to show you the way, his way. And he sees it all, and he knows it all, and he has a plan in it all. For your good and for his glory, 
He wants to let you and I in on that. Now, personally, I love counsel. I need counsel. I would venture to say that as of late, the thing that I've asked for the most from God is counsel for his wisdom. So full disclosure, I am currently in the strangest season of my career that I have ever been in. I feel like God is moving me on from what I've always done and onto something completely different, and I've had lots of affirmation to that end. But what that thing is, and when that thing is going to happen, and how I'm going to get there is unclear. So I need to trust, and I need to depend, and I need to rely. I need a wonderful counselor. Late last year, both Jonathan and Jessica, and Sheila and I, along with other friends, felt called to plant a church. And we're doing our best to lead it. But let me let you in on a little secret. We weren't really planning on doing this. We've never done this before. And we don't really know what we're doing. (laughs) And so, we have begged God to lead us and to guide us and to counsel us. We have sought the wisdom of godly men and women and we're absorbing as much as we can, asking God to plant his good, wonderful counsel deep within us. And even more than that, we're asking God to give us the courage and strength to obey what we feel he is leading us into. No matter how afraid we are or how uncertain we may be, we need a wonderful counselor. Because not all counsel is good, and certainly not all counsel is wonderful. Do you realize that the sin that befalls you and I and all of mankind and all of the trouble that ensues is the result of bad counsel? God first placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and gave this counsel to Adam. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And just a few verses later, Satan in the form of a serpent appears with evil counsel for Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, sin, rebellion, the fall and death entered into our world. But God in his wisdom, foreknowledge, and counsel already had a plan of redemption in place. A child born to us and a son given. As Charles Spurgeon said, it was right that the world should have a counselor to restore it if it had a counselor to destroy it. So I've seen a professional counselor before and I would wholeheartedly encourage others to do the same where that's needed. There's no shame in getting help. Wise and godly counselors are gifts to us, but they have limits. 
right? Here's what I mean. First, my counselor sat across from me and I had to tell him what I was going through. But not God. God lives within me and he knows me completely. Sometimes he knows that we need to cry and we need someone to cry with. And sometimes he knows that we need someone to tell us the truth, even if it's hard to hear. And Jesus knows the difference. He knows what we need and when we need it, even before we ask him. Second, my counselor was unable to relate to what I was going through. He hadn't been through anything like that, but not with God. According to the book of Hebrews, in Jesus Christ, we have one who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Whatever it is, my friends, Jesus has been through it. Third, the counselor that I met with required an appointment, but not God. He is always available, and he's ready to listen, and he's ready to help. And finally, the counselor that I saw charged me money for our sessions, not God. Do you know that the debt that we owed for whatever it is was paid in full in the blood that he shed on the cross? Because he is wonderful counselor. Now the counsel of God does come with a couple of catches. First, we need to ask for it. Jesus' invitation is come to me Ask me, pray to me, and it is by God's spirit that we are given a heart for his will and even a desire to ask. Second, we need to receive and obey his counsel when it comes. Jesus' invitation is listen to me, trust me, obey me. I know what's best for you. And as Jonathan preached last week, our ability to receive and obey is spirit-given. So there are several tragic moments in the Gospels where we see someone ask Jesus for counsel. But they do not receive it, and they do not obey. They come and they ask Jesus a question. He gives an answer that they don't want to hear, and they walk away. So let me ask you a question. When life causes you to wonder what to do, which way to go, or how to get there, is it God that you seek? Is it his counsel that you desire? Or do you walk away from him and try to figure things out on your own? When God makes it clear what you ought to do or what you ought not do, do you listen? Do you obey? Are you independent? Or are you God-dependent? Ask yourself this morning, am I truly seeking out and heeding God's treasured counsel even in the smallest things? You know, God's counsel isn't just for the big stuff. Both God and his counsel are always available to us and nothing delights him more than his children coming to ask We find God's wonderful counsel in his word. 
Psalm 19 reads, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And we also find God's wonderful counsel in his spirit. Listen to John 14. Jesus said, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I have said. Do you know what the Greek word for all is? All. And we find God's wonderful counsel in his son. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. One of my personal favorite stories about God's counsel is found in 1 Kings chapter 3. Beginning in verse 5, we read, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. It pleased the Lord. So as a young, new king, Following in the footsteps of his father David, God gave Solomon the green light to ask for anything he wanted. And Solomon asked for wisdom. He could have asked for health, he could have asked for wealth, power, or the destruction of his enemies. Things that you and I very likely would have wanted to ask for in that same situation, or even ask for today, should that same green light be given. But Solomon asked for the counsel of God, a wonderful counselor. And according to verse 12, God gave Solomon wisdom unlike all who came before him and all who would come after him. And as it turns out, God gave him all the other things that he could have asked for too. It doesn't always work that way. Be encouraged, friends, as you hear those words, because God in his grace and mercy has given you and I even more than Solomon. God knows that we also need what Solomon asked for. He knows that we need his counsel and we need his wisdom, whether or not we realize it, whether or not we heed it, or whether or not we obey it. And he knows that we need to know him. And so a wonderful counselor is exactly whose God has given us in his son. Do you know how much infinitely better 
receiving Jesus, the wonderful counselor is, than what God gave to Solomon or all who came before? He gave us one who personifies wisdom because wisdom is a who more than it's a what. Paul wrote in Colossians 2, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom does not exist outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ and his grace in giving it to us. God gave us one who understood the mysteries of the Father, the only one who could reveal how wonderful God and his works actually are. Listen to Jesus pray in John chapter 17. He writes, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. We have been given a wonderful counselor who would show us God because he and the Father are one. He would show us how to live a life in and for God, dependent on the Father and dwelled by the Spirit just as he was. So friends, when you consider all of this, when you think about the nativity of Jesus, are you filled with wonder? This is how you came to us, God? As a baby born in a feeding trough, not in a palace. To be coddled, tended to, and cared for by the very ones you made. Into a world that would not look for you or recognize you, even though it was created by you. This is the upside-down life that you call us to, God, that the first would be last, and the last would be first, and the greatest among us would be a servant to all. This is who you are, Jesus. That you, the author of life, would write yourself into the mess that we have made and rescue us. That you, the righteous, holy, and glorious one, would give your life as a ransom for many and give to them, give to us, eternal life. The Spirit of God cries out, isn't it marvelous? Isn't he wonderful? But apart from the Spirit's counsel and revelation to us, it really all seems foolish, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians told us that these things would seem foolish. He wrote in verse 24, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, God in his wonderful counsel sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, fully man and fully God. 
and reveal them to the lowly, to the simple, the despised, and the humble. And the wonders and the wisdom of Jesus astonished all who saw and heard him. Right up unto his death on a cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. And even to this day, thousands of years and miles away from when and where it all happened, aren't we amazed? Isn't he wonderful? And one day, because God has ordained it in his counsel and in his wisdom, we who are disciples of Jesus Christ will see this wonderful counselor face to face in his second advent. But until that day, friends, we have a loving, wonderful counselor. We have a sympathetic high priest to turn to, to boast of, and to trust in. So this advent season, may our affections be stirred for him. May our hearts and minds be reminded of him. And may our lips praise him. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give you praise and thanks this morning for Emmanuel, for our wonderful counselor, for our beautiful Savior. That you, God, in and through your Son and by your Spirit are with us and in us. You came to us in a way we could not have anticipated and gave us what we were not wise enough to ask for. So as we live in this world, remind us that we are not of it and that our true citizenship is in heaven with you. Let us live well between your two advents, the already and the not yet, remembering that you have already come and you will come again for those who are yours. What a promise you have given. What hope we have. May we declare the good news of your gospel to those who have not heard or received it. God, would you save the lost? Would you raise the dead? Remind us that it is by grace that we were saved and it is your grace that we need to extend to others. Lord, our only boast is you. And Father, we confess today that we need Jesus, our wonderful counselor, to be wisdom to us, to reveal the mysteries of this world and the one to come, and to be a light unto our path. Where we are confused and afflicted, would you bring clarity and peace? Where we are haughty, arrogant and self-sufficient, would you humble us and cause us to rely on you? Let the sights and the sounds and smells and traditions of this Christmas season point us clearly to you, the wonders of who you are and what you have done in Jesus. Remind us that the baby born in a manger was in fact born to die in our place, that we might stand righteous before you and have eternal life. We long to be where the praise is never ending. But until that day, Lord, would you love through us and live through us and lead through us. For your glory we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen.